Welcome to the show for sinners and sufferers. My name is Cody, and today we're going to talk about sin. Everyone's favorite topic, I'm sure. It's one that a number of Christians in churches try to avoid talking about, but we need to talk about it because so much bad theology and questionable behavior as Christians comes from misunderstanding sin and holiness. Either we we think far too highly of ourselves and our own merit, our own holiness, or we think too lowly of God, his true holiness, and how he sees our sin. And holiness and sin are are two of these terms that, that Christians use a lot and might have some idea what they mean. We might have some vague sense, but if really pressed, a lot of Christians would really struggle to define them. So what it means for God to be holy, what that word means is to be set apart. It doesn't mean, you know, generally good. It doesn't mean well-behaved or or nice. It's to be separate from, other than anything that is not God. God is the most holy in scripture. He is called holy, 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 which is a way of saying to the greatest degree. He is the most set apart. And what is he set apart from? Us, sinners, because we are by nature sinful. And what sin means is to fall short. It literally means a failure. We fall short of holiness. We fail to live to that standard. We are unlike God. And this should be a great concern for us because sin is not inconsequential. At one level, sin corrupts. The more we sin, the more numb to sin we become, the more slaves to it we become. If you read about you know stories of serial killers and career criminals, they often will talk about the first time and how like crazy it was and the way they felt and the emotions and the way their mind was racing. And then as they go on, it becomes like number, it becomes less like the law of diminishing return. And and that's how sin affects us. We, while we're all born in sin because of Adam, Romans 5.12 says death has spread to all men because of the sin of Adam. That sin corrupts our minds and our hearts further as we entertain it. It corrupts the image that we were meant to bear as reflections of the creator. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Sin drags us down. It corrupts our hearts and minds drags us further from holiness, further from the, the otherness that God is, and ultimately, it condemns us. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Our sin cannot touch holiness. It can't even be in the presence of holiness. Habakkuk 1.13 says God cannot even look on evil because he is so pure. Isaiah 59 says, But your iniquities are separating you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Sin and holiness are are like oil and water that cannot mix, or like two magnets that, that push away from each other. 
It's not that God simply does not like sin, but that sin cannot exist in the presence of God. It must be destroyed. It must be cast away from him. And the consequence of that is death. And that doesn't doesn't change in the New Testament under the, the gospel. That's not some irrelevant Old Testament theology. The price of sin will be paid either by you or by Jesus. So what is sin? We've already established that sin means falling short. The, the London Baptist Catechism from, from 1689, which is a catechism, we haven't talked about this in a while. Catechism is a statement of Christian doctrines in the form of, of questions and answers in order to be memorable. Catechisms are essentially historic statements of faith that were compiled and affirmed by numerous pastors and teachers in history. And the Baptist Catechism answers this question of, of what is sin, saying, Sin is every want of conformity to and transgression of the law of God. Or in today's English, that means every failure to live up to the standard of God and every direct act of disobedience. Through God's law, we have a, a really defined picture of what that looks like. First you know, John 3.4 says everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. The law makes it clear to us what sin is. Hence why Paul writes that the law increases transgression. It increases our, our knowledge of what God desires of us and in, t- in turn the obligation of living up to that. We often think uh, of sin purely in terms of, of commission. The things that, that you do that you should not, you commit sins. You know, God's law says, do not steal. If you steal, you're committing sin. You're actively disobeying a command. But what the catechism's answer uh, to what is sin captures nicely is is that it it also is a failure to live up to the calling placed on your lives. When When we don't live gracefully, we don't show patience, we don't practice gratitude and joy, when we don't love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we're we're failing to be holy we're sinning. Christopher Hitchens is a a famous atheist apologist debater guy, and one of his favorite kind of gotcha questions that he likes to throw at Christians is he says, what moral good can a Christian do that an atheist cannot? And the answer is, love God. Jesus says this is the greatest commandment, that we love God. Even that we love God more than, than our own family he says you, you must hate your father and mother. That's how much more your love for God should be than your love for even your own family. And anytime we fail to love God fully, we're in sin. Anytime we fail to be as holy as God, as Jesus said, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. When we fail to achieve that, we are in sin. And that that should feel kind of kind of unrealistic to us. It should feel hopeless. It should make us feel a little uncomfortable because that's how Jesus presented it. 
He says, you think you're, you're good because you haven't committed adultery, but if you've even looked lustfully at someone, you're, you've sinned. You think you're good because you haven't literally murdered anyone, but if you've even yelled at someone, you've wished ill on someone in traffic who cut you off, that sort of thing. If you've been angry, you're guilty. And close doesn't count it. It, it doesn't mean anything if you're anything less than, than holy. If you're not set apart, you're in sin. And my friend Matthew uses this analogy, or he used it. I don't know if he regularly does, but he used it once with me. He says that if the goal is to be on the moon, our best efforts are like standing on a ladder. It doesn't matter that that you're two feet closer, you're still nowhere near the goal. And Christians tend to respond to this reality of our decrepit, hopeless, and sinful position in a number of non-gospel ways. One of the most popular ones is legalism. Legalism looks past the heart issue, the corruption, the motivations of sin, and focuses on specific actions. It tends to to heap on laws to make a longer list, a a stricter list of don't-do's. So if alcoholism, drunkenness is a sin, then to the legalist, they'd say drinking alcohol at all is a sin. Yet they might excuse uh, caffeine addiction. Like how how many people have you heard justify their grumpiness and and their ungrace-like behavior in the morning before they've had their, their morning coffee? Or a legalist might decide that certain words, swear words, are inherently sinful just by being that word, regardless of use and context. But if you yell at someone and you call them a poopy butt face, you know, a butt muffin, whatever, that, that's fine because it wasn't a swear word. Legalism is ironically shallow despite thinking they take the law especially seriously. They miss the point. Because God says, I I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's not merely about the, the outward action. It's about the heart condition. It's about what's leading you to make your decisions, about where you're placing your trust. The legalistic person is not trusting in Jesus they're relying on themselves. While they will, they might credit their legalism to love for the Lord. Often, what they really love is to feel that they are succeeding in holiness. They're they're achieving moral superiority, and they're measuring themselves by comparing themselves to others and judging their holiness based on the world around them, not on God. I like to use the the analogy. Uh, of having a really high power flashlight and if you're standing outside in a field in broad daylight and you turn on your high power flashlight it doesn't seem very bright you might even be thinking is this working you just look until you shine it right in your face and you're like oh yes that is working but if you're standing in an empty field in the middle of the night and it's pitch black and you turn on the light suddenly it's it's obvious it's glaring and i think often when we think of our sin in this world where we're surrounded by sin, sins on TV, it's being celebrated in our popular music. We're like, my sin's not that bad. My sin's not that bad. But then in contrast to God, who's fully without sin, it's glaring and it's obvious. And I get that the metaphor gets kind of 
it seems kind of backwards because often light means good and using light to to represent sin here but i mean you could also compare it to uh, like if you have a baby screaming at a concert compared to a baby screaming in church like like when we're surrounded by something like sin suddenly our sin doesn't seem so bad it doesn't seem so unusual and that's where legalism thrives Every, the the strictest legalist will have no ground to stand on before god the other extreme response the other anti-gospel way that a lot of christians tend to respond to the reality of our sinfulness is um, liberalism the idea that that if we're not saved by the law the law doesn't matter do what you want and we could try to theologize ourselves into this and make it work from scripture by, by kind of just picking select verses. Because, you know, Romans 5 says, as sin abounds, grace abounds more. And the more of a, a wretched sinner we are, the more glory revealed in Christ for saving us. So shouldn't we just go on sinning that grace may abound? And, and Paul answers exactly that question. He anticipates it and he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it to continue in sin and unholiness is is disrespectful to the gift we've been given we have been made holy been given new names and identities we're called children of god so let's live in it to the ephesians paul speaks of, of taking off the old self and putting on the new if you were promoted at your work if you're given, given a new position, you don't return the next day and continue doing your old duties. You don't still, you know, go sit on the bottom floor desk and, and do the lower positions responsibilities. You step into your new role. Or if you're an orphan and you're adopted off the street, you don't go back into the alley to sleep at night. You move into the house. I think one of the the best ways to approach the Christian life is is not to just think in terms of what we cannot do, but who God has made us, what he is, is calling us to do. To be a child of God is not just to be a a free recipient of of grace. Like, yes, that's true, but there are also responsibilities. They're they're like household chores in a way that, that as children of God, we are his ambassadors. We are his hands and feet in the world. So let's live into that. Another approach I've heard a number of pastors taking to this problem, and this is if you've never heard of this, maybe ask your pastor because this thought is very common and it's this approach of the the law of love. If we look at the problem of sin and holiness and the unbearable weight of the law, we go, well, it's all about love, right? And the, and the proof text is Romans 13, 8 says, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law it's not uncommon to hear preachers say, don't worry about the law, just love people. It's all about love. And that that message resounds really well with culture. Culture loves that because it's like, oh yeah, just love. Then, then there's no judgment. Do whatever you want. But Paul goes on in that Romans 13 passage to explain that, that love fulfills the law as it leads you to 
not murder, covet, steal, or commit adultery. Love is still defined by the law. It's not up to us to define what love is based on whatever we feel and how we like it. God's law defines love. It's not just about being really sentimental. If I think, if I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking, oh man, I really love that person so much. And I just, and I just gush and I feel all the sentiment and I feel the warm fuzzies and then I slap them in the face. That's not loving of me because love isn't just sentimentality. If we're still committing sin against God and others, and saying, yeah, but I love them. That's not true. If, if, if we are not being honest with people, we're not telling people the truth, we're, we're misleading people, we're not loving them. Jesus says plainly, if you love me, keep my commandments. Leaving love vague and undefined, uh, ironically, it's how we get this, this mushy liberalism, but it's also how we get people who say preach the truth and love just means telling people the truth. It just means shouting at them because telling the truth is love. But God defines what love is and, and it's active. There's an old DC talk song, Love is a Verb. You know, love is, is carrying out action. It's carrying out the many one another commandments in scripture. It's not just sentimentality to justify whatever action we want. Love is defined by Christ. And if we think we're loving everyone, we, we, we probably aren't. But I like to, when I was a, a teenager and I was a fairly new Christian, I, I really got hung up on this idea that, you know, you'd read the one another commandments and you'd read what, what we're told to do in scripture. And I'd think if everyone just did this, if we actually lived in this way, it would be a utopia. Like, think how much better life would be for everyone. There'd be no one in need. There'd be no violence or theft. Like, there'd be so much less pain and sorrow in the world if we, if we all actually obeyed the commandments as written. But the reality is that, that everyone is sinful. I think one of the, the dumbest heresies of the world today is this idea that everyone is generally good. Like, just look around. Do you really believe that if, you know, we defunded the police, that if we had no police whatsoever, that the world wouldn't be in chaos? If there's no responsibility, if we, we don't feel uh, the presence of justice, we, we don't live according to it. We, we, we give in to our base tendencies. And in this way, sin is the great equalizer. Whether we, we try to behave our way out of problem or love our way out of it, sin is the universal reality. All of us are sinners. First John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He's, he's writing this to the church and including himself in that. He's saying we have sin. We cannot say we have no sin. Every last person on this planet is a sinner. Yet Christians contend to, to use sin and the language of sin to create a, an us and them dichotomy, to ostracize certain people in, in groups. We can act as if certain sinners are somehow worse than we are, less worthy of the same free grace that, that none of us deserved. And we're really all equally 
in need of a savior. We, we all need to continue in a life of repentance to trust in Jesus and hang our lives on the cross. Even as we become sanctified and become objectively better people, as we become more Christ-like, we still have no grounds for pride as it is the Spirit working within us. Paul says there, there is no reason to boast, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Even, even the desire to do good is really something that comes from God, his spirit fighting our sin nature within us. The difference between a saved person and an unsaved person isn't that the saved person is better or less of a sinner or even that, that they're smarter or wiser, but, but that they have received grace through faith, which is itself a gift of God. This is a topic that we need to talk about more and be more defined on because of the number of times, especially working with youth, that I've had someone come to me and ask, do you think I'm a sinner because uh, of who I am, because I've, I've slept around or who I've slept with, because I'm an addict, because of my past or, or because of what I'm, I'm presently doing. And, and the only honest answer is yes. But that doesn't mean you're any worse off than the rest of us, that you cannot be saved by the same free grace as anyone else. Paul says of himself that he is the worst of sinners, and 1 Timothy establishes that if God can save him, he can save anybody. There are people in our communities who Christians often treat as if they're unsavable, because sin is part of their nature. But sin is part of all of our natures. This is why Jesus says we must be born again because we are born with a tendency to sin. We are born corrupt. We must be born again to be transformed and filled with the Spirit to be sanctified towards Christ-likeness. We're not saved because we are better or more deserving, but it is entirely by faith in Christ. Romans 5 says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. The answer to, to sin is not legalism or liberalism or the, the law of love. It's Jesus Christ who bore the weight of our sin in death. He is both just and justifier. He did not merely brush off sin. It's not that it doesn't matter to him anymore, that it's no big deal. Sin is dire, and he punished our sin in himself. The grace he freely gives to us was costly to him. And because of his sacrifice, because of his invitation that he now calls us to be children of God, we can say that we are both sinners and saints, that we are both justified and sinners justified while yet unholy we are made holy in him and this should make us incredibly humble before god knowing that he has no reason to choose us to love us but he does anyways our posture before him should not be uh, one of expectation of thinking that we, we deserve anything because of obedience, but purely a posture of, of gratitude and worship. 
This should keep us humble in how we reach out into the world, understanding that we all start in the same place, that we're all equally as sinful, that we're all equally as condemned without Christ. There's a famous quote that says, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Uh, That's almost cliche. I kind of hate quoting it so much because it's becoming cliche, but it's true. We're all just beggars. None of us deserves that bread more than the other. So when we get it, why not share it? It should also give us confidence that we can come to the Father as his children whom he loves. That there, there is nothing we can do to be any more or less worthy of his love. So nothing we can do to make him love us any more or less. You cannot lose through your actions what you did not earn through your actions. The late Timothy Keller once wrote, You are more sinful than you ever thought you were and more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. Well, that's the episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on YouTube or send a message on Instagram at SinnerSuffers. Or you can join our Discord community, which is totally free, by the way, but it's a great place to to ask questions, have some conversation, share memes, all that fun stuff. All of our links are on sinnersandsuffers.com, and I will see you later.